good to be here. I'll stand up here just for visibility. I quite like it down in the sort of the intimacy of a congregation, but it's a trade-off, isn't it, between intimacy and visibility. So I'm only we, so I'll stand up here uh, this morning. Thank you very much for your invitation. It's good to be with you. It feels in some ways like home from home. It does remind me a little bit of what it used to be like when I was pastor at Abbey Hill Baptist Church years ago. And it was during that time that George Hossack, the late George, George Hossack, who uh, will be remembered to you, some of you here, was my senior friend. Uh, so it was, uh, that's my link with Edry from a way back. Was he minister here twice, called here twice? Is that correct? No, he wasn't, no. I've got that wrong, but uh, I thought he'd, uh, he'd come and then he'd come back again or something like that, but uh, memories of, of George. I was wondering what to preach on, and I don't know when you last heard a sermon on feet. I've got great admiration for podiatrists. Uh, I don't think it's a vocation I would necessarily follow. I don't think feet are the most kind of attractive of things, and uh, some are maybe more beautiful than others. Let's be politically correct about this. Uh, but a sermon on feet, well, all will be revealed, but not my feet, by the way. Um, I'm going to be preaching from John 13. We're coming near to Easter week. Easter week, it's Palm Sunday, next Sunday. And I'm going to read from John 13 in a, a moment. But as we're approaching Easter, um, we'll be thinking of the cross and the resurrection. We've got Palm Sunday, we've got Easter Sunday, we've got Monday, Thursday, all coming up. There are references in all of the Gospels to different aspects of what we would remember at Easter week, including the Last Supper, of course, which is particularly remembered on Monday, Thursday. But John's Gospel is different to the, what we call the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John, I love John's Gospel and the way in which John draws out the spiritual principles. And, and it's a, an enlightening passage that we're going to turn to this morning. I'm going to read from John 13 just now, and we'll read from verse 12 through to verse 17. Well, let's read from verse 1, actually. We'll read from verse 1 through to 17. We'll take in the whole passage here. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. 
For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen. This little line here, this text um, early on in the reading, that Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, I think is significant. When we're coming to endings, we think about the impact, perhaps to be sort of morbid about it, we're coming to the, the end of life. People coming to the end of life and knowing about it will reflect on what's my life been like? What impact have I made upon the world? But Jesus is going to the cross and then there'll be the resurrection and the ascension. But his earthly ministry is coming to a close. And I think his thoughts turn to the gravity of his last final acts and his last his final words. We find his uh, new commandment to the disciples, love one another. Uh, by this shall all uh, people know that you are my disciples if you love, have love one for another. And this act here of washing the disciples' feet, what would Jesus choose to do in the last days of his ministry? Something sensational, something headline-grabbing? He washes the disciples' feet. He takes the form of a servant. And this act of service and love for the disciples is one that impacts them very deeply indeed. I've been uh, reading a, a book by Tom Lenny, Land of Many Revivals, which is a very in-depth book on revivals that took place in Scotland between 1527 and 1857. It's, it's almost like a thesis. It's very detailed indeed. But as I was wading through it, I came across Dougal Buchanan of Strathia, and I thought, I think I recognize that name. He was an evangelist in Kinloch Leven, and he was a servant of God who left a very deep impact, a footprint, if you like, upon the lives of others within his community. Liz and I first came across Dougal Buchanan when we were in Strathia for an overnight break and I saw this gothic, rather gothic-looking monument, and I thought, oh, what's that? Is that a war memorial? What is it? And I went over to it, and I started reading the plaque, and I was very surprised to see that something like this had been uh, put together and assembled in memory of a preacher. Dougal, Dougal Buchanan, it says, born 1716, teacher and evangelist, mighty in the scriptures. Oh, wow! 
Imagine having something like that set up. Why did they do it? Because he was a teacher, an evangelist, mighty in the scriptures, used by God in revival, who left a footprint, if you like. When I talk about a footprint, we talk about carbon footprints these days, of uh, being careful about the carbon footprint. And there's this idiom that we use about footprints on the world. But footprints can be negative. Footprints can be positive. Footprints are the imprinting of a life or of a ministry upon other people. Something that transforms people in a way that enables them to transform others. And we all leave a footprint in life through our service and our example as Christians, whether small or whether large. Dougal Buchanan left a very large footprint on his world. And we also do the same. It got me thinking about footprints in my life. And uh, I, I write poems, and I wrote a kind of poem prayer about this, which, uh, which reads as follows, Footprints, his and mine. What kind of footprints am I leaving in the sands of time? Christ's footprints shaped the future through the human heart, saving changing, healing, ruling, Lord of every part. What steps will others take because of me? Who will choose to take the path that follows thee? What footprints are we leaving on the lives of others, on children, parents, husbands, wives, on sisters, and on brothers? What footprints will they leave in turn in whose hearts your word is sown? Faint footprints that disappear or greater steps that others choose to follow in and make their own. God grant the footprints that I leave will lead to greater things, unmeasured, though unknown. I was reading over that again, and it is my prayer it's one that I'd like to revisit every now and again because I think it's probably one of the most important things about life is the footprint that we leave on the lives of others. And Jesus left footprints of huge significance and impact, inviting others in those words, follow me, follow in my footsteps. Many have and many will. And through his life, the world has been changed. Jesus invited others to follow him, as a rabbi would to a group of disciples. And the pattern was in those days that the rabbi would invite people to become their disciples. And if we understand the Jewish way of discipleship and rabbis, the rabbi was interested, more interested in becoming like the rabbi and how the rabbi was in their ways of being than they were about knowing what the rabbi knew. I think that's quite an important thing to, for us as Christians. We might have a limited understanding of Scripture, but what is more important to us is that we become like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple it doesn't mean to know everything that we can do about the Bible, yet that is important. Important as it means, we can know it all and not follow it at all. We can know it all and not become like Jesus, but we can know a little and yet make it our goal to be like Jesus. And that is what discipleship actually 
means. And here in John 13, we've got this magnificent account of a magnificent Saviour modelling for the disciples how to be within the world. Knowing that his hour had come, his thoughts turn to what he's leaving behind, the footprints he'll leave on the lives of the disciples. And it was an act of true humility that provided both instruction as well as example. But it's more than this. Here, Jesus, in a dramatic way, summarizes his ministry. It's a drama played out before the people. I like Ray Stedman's sermons, the late Ray, Ray Stedman. I don't know whether you've read any of his stuff, but he's very good. He's quite wordy, but he's very good. And he describes in one of his sermons uh, the, the way in which Jesus elucidates his, his ministry by uh, getting up from the meal. He, he got up from the meal just as he had previously risen from the throne of glory. You know, he left heaven's glory. And in this, he gets up from the meal in the same way as he's, he's risen from the throne of glory. He took off his outer clothing just as he had laid aside his glory when he came into the world. And he wrapped a towel around him, his, himself just as Paul records he took the form of a servant and humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Then he poured water into a basin just as in a few hours he was about to pour out his own life blood for the sins of the world. And then he began to wash the feet of the disciples and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him, picturing his act of cleansing from sin. And when he had finished, he returned to his place, just as the writer of Hebrews records for us, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So we've got this picture here, just like we've got in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, the Lord leaving the throne of glory and coming, taking the form of a servant and humbling himself to death even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him to the highest place that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What did Jesus mean when he said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you? What did he mean by this? What kind of a service did he have in mind? What does it mean for you and me? If we are disciples of Christ, and our first and foremost goal is to be Christ-like, in the light of this passage of Scripture, what does it mean? It's, a, it's an example of humble service. Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve. Give his life as a ransom for many. And what this illustrates to me is how much easier it is to carry out humble acts of service unselfconsciously when we are secure in our relationship with God the Father. Humility is a, is a slippery thing. The moment you think you've got it, you've lost it. 
probably the best way is to focus on Jesus and be totally unself-conscious, because when our gaze is fixed on Jesus, it's very humbling. Think about who He is, and anything that we do, well, as soon as we start to think about ourselves, pride rises up. We cannot be humble. But here, Jesus unselfconsciously carries out a task that is a lowly task without any issues at all, because he is secure as the Son of the Father. When we're secure in the love of the Father, it's so much easier. This is something which had, well, something that the disciples hadn't actually reached yet. They appear not to have reached the stage where they had known the Father in the same way, so that they could carry out unselfconsciously without even thinking about it. There wouldn't even be written down that, Peter got up and washed the feet of the disciples. And even if he did, he would have struggled with it, or he would have been proud of it, or something like that. They were self-conscious, not God-conscious. They were more interested in looking cool amongst the others. Nobody wanted to do the lowly task, because as we know in the story, uh, the, the story behind this is that if uh, the convention was that dirty feet needed to be washed, whether it was summer or winter. And there was always a servant there to do it, but on this occasion there wasn't. And so Jesus carries out the humble task to their horror and discomfort that Jesus is the one that does it, nobody else is prepared to do it. There's an elephant in the room. Who's going to wash the feet before we have the meal? And it's kind of going around, and nobody's addressing it, and Jesus gets up and does it. It's amazing. Contrast the disciples, particularly in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 verse, and chapter 22, where they argue amongst themselves as to who is the greatest. I think that's funny, actually, uh, when you contrast that to what Jesus is doing. And how frustrating that must have been for Jesus. Oh, these are my disciples, and they're arguing. One wants to be at my right, one wants to be at the left, and they're all arguing, and I'm better than you, and I'm greater than you. Oh, damn me. How are these going to be the people who are going to change the world after him? Well, he leaves an impact, a footprint on their life by doing this. How would you describe yourself? Somebody said to you, tell me a little bit about yourself. If you start off, well, I'm, a, I'm retired, or I'm a plumber, or I'm a teacher, or a nurse, or a student, or this sort of thing, it's not a very good place to start. You might go a little step further and say, I'm a mother or a grandfather. I think that's actually better when we're defined in terms of our relationships. But primarily, we wouldn't say this to somebody else. They think we're pious. They wouldn't understand. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God the Father. Actually, that's my script. I wouldn't say that to somebody else because they wouldn't understand it necessarily. But that's my primary identity. I'm a child of the Father. And I want to, to, to build into that and, and def be defined in that way. And all of my other relationships to become almost secondary 
to that, because it's in that that I find greater security. It's humble service, but it's also practical service. As I've mentioned there, there's this social convention which had to be carried out, and Jesus does what all of the others won't do. Christians taking the initiative to carry out humble, practical tasks has a certain beauty about it. You know, somebody unselfconsciously, it happens in churches. Who are the people that, you know, put the chairs away, do the washing up, handle them with the catering, do the, do the, the cleaning? Something happens, and there's always one or two people who will just take the initiative and get in there. They're, they're the beautiful Christians, the one who don't even think about it. Uh, they're not on the platform, they're not giving the notices, they're not kind of in the lights at all, they're not in the public arena, they're the believers who simply don't even think about it. They take initiative in undertaking practical tasks that need to be done without looking for any thanks, recognition, or reward. That's Christianity, that's Christ-likeness. Reminds me of the prayer of Ignatius of Loyola, and not to ask for any reward save that of knowing that we do thy will. Not to ask for any reward save that of knowing that we do thy will. Remember that one from school assemblies years ago that was prayed, and I thought, it's one of those things that stuck with me. Not to ask for any reward save that of knowing that we do thy will. This is Christ-likeness. And God's primary intention for us as believers is that we become Christ-like. And John 13 provides us with a model for us, an example to follow. Living as Christ did in the world in which we live. An act of service that is humble, an act of service that is practical, and yet more than this, an example of preparatory service. An example of humble service, an example of practical service, an example of preparatory service. As we can see, the, the account is rich with symbolism. Washing their feet symbolized divine forgiveness. By washing the feet of Jesus, uh, by washing their feet, Jesus implied that they were not only to imitate humble service by, by being willing to take the lowest place, but they were also to forgive one another, because it was a symbolism here. In the cleansing, there was forgiveness. You also should wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. It's not like, you know, the Pope with an annual ritual ceremony washing the feet of some little boy who has made sure that his feet are very clean before the Pope washes them, sort of thing. It's, and it's not, as some Christian groups have integrated this into communion, uh, some ritual to follow. It is a principle that we have here. Very easy to carry out as a ritual and not actually embed it somehow in our way of living. Preparatory service, an element of forgiveness. There's preparatory service in that they would not break bread together around the table before the washing and the cleansing had taken place. I think there's a symbolism in this, even as we're breaking bread together here. 
this morning. Forgiveness has a cleansing effect, and cleansing also takes place within a fellowship of believers when forgiveness is practiced, the choice to forgive, even in a prayer. And when forgiveness takes place, it enables believers to enjoy fellowship together, to break bread together, nothing between. Peter was resistant. Jesus was persuasive. Not my, not going to wash my feet. Why was he resistant? Well, it takes humility to receive forgiveness. Some of us may struggle with that. The whole idea of coming to the cross, <laughs> you can't, we cannot come to the cross and ask for forgiveness without doing so with humility. We've got to humble ourselves. And it is, it's one of the big barriers that prevents people becoming Christians. To understand, you know, we'd rather rely on our works. We'd rather, rather rely on the myths that somehow there are scales in heaven, and if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I'm going to go to heaven. And if my bad deeds outweigh my good deeds, well, you're a total myth. We don't find it anywhere in Scripture. The only way of salvation is to ask Jesus for the forgiveness that He alone can give on the grounds of His sacrifice upon the cross for sin as the one who had never sinned, who, I, who identifies with us and as our substitute and a representative upon the cross, satisfies the wrath of God against sin in the shedding of His blood, so that we, through faith in Him, may receive free forgiveness and justification. I hope you have come to Jesus in that way. And if it's pride that's holding you back, oh, ditch the pride. It's a mistake to hold on to the pride and somehow hold on to errors and hold on to myths when the truth of God's Word is that the only way of salvation is through trusting in the cross of Jesus. And so Jesus says to Peter, even unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Are those prophetic words to you this morning? Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter's response, then wash the whole of me. Well, he'd already been cleansed. He did need to deal with the issues of the day, and we do need to come regularly to the cross and ask for forgiveness. I think that's the pattern that we see here. But there is also that issue of forgiving one another, which we don't always find easy. Sometimes we simply have to pray a prayer, Lord, I choose to forgive so-and-so, even though my feelings aren't necessarily going to change very quickly. It's my choice. That's how we forgive when we're struggling with our emotions. Very often I've preached upon the issue of forgiveness and I think, oh dear, pe people get locked into this feeling. We all get locked into this. How can I forgive because I still feel angry? Yes, we can. We just tell God I choose to forgive and it's done. You can't change your feelings, especially when you have been unjustly treated by somebody else. You can't change the way you feel but you can tell God, I choose to forgive. And as far as God is concerned, you're free from that moment. 
and feelings may change later. But you've told God, I've forgiven. That's what matters. And it's great when it's a lot easier than that, when people do say sorry and when, when we can feel better and there are healing of wounds. But this is the pattern that we have here. Living by the example of Jesus is the essence of a healthy fellowship of believers. Never choosing to... We can choose to hold on to resentment. That's a mistake. We get locked into that. The root of bitterness goes down when we choose not to forgive. And we should be very, very, very careful about the curse of those words that says, I will never forgive you. Repent of such statements which can lock us into an attitude of mind and a bitterness of heart that poisons our spirit and damages our lives and the lives of others as a result. Ian Bounds wrote concerning a healthy church and a progressive church and a prospering church and a growing church, as it were, People are looking for better methods. God is looking for better people. No methodology for church development or growth can substitute for the renewal of the people of God who remain together, resolving to be Christ-like in their relationships with one another. And we constantly need the Holy Spirit for this. The late John Stott, in his final address at the Keswick Convention, was uh, speaking on, I think, last things, footprints, endings. And he asked the question, what is God's purpose for his people? And the summary that he had finally settled on was this. God wants his people to become like Christ. Simplicity, you get that from John Stott. Profound yet simple. God wants his people to become like Christ. Christ-likeness is the will of God for the people of God. He emphasized that Christ-likeness is only attainable through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he quoted William Temple with these words, It is no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it, I can't. And it is no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the Spirit could come into me, then I could live a life like his. God's way for us is to be like Christ and to be filled with the Spirit so that we are enabled by the Spirit, not grieving, not quenching, not resisting the Spirit, but bearing the fruit of the Spirit, we become more like Christ. And then the footprints that we leave behind and the impact that we make on the life of others will shape our world for good and for Christ on into the future. Wherever we go, we leave footprints. What kind of footprints are we leaving? 
You and I are unlikely to have memorials. Here's the Ross Murphy and the Nigel Heath statue sort of thing. Forgive the pigeons that land on his head and all that sort of thing, but uh, we're not going to get that. We're going to be forgotten in coming generations. We will be. But our impact won't be. Your impact and mine on the lives of others for Christ will not be forgotten. That doesn't change. Though a name may be forgotten, an impact remains. How do you respond to sermons? Here's a, a, a naughty story for you. It's, um, this is subversive preaching. Story about ducks. An old story about a church of ducks. Every week they would waddle to Sunday services and open the duck book. And they would sing duck songs and listen to the duck preacher expound the meaning of being a duck. One particular Sunday, all of the ducks waddled into the church and the service began, and shortly after, the duck preacher opened the duck book and began to preach. This Sunday, however, the message was different. With a new determination and fire in his eyes, the duck preacher began to convey a new message. We are ducks, he said with confidence. Amen, said all of the ducks. We have waddled too long, he continued. We have wings. We can fly, he shouted, as all of the ducks joined together in resounding, Amen. The service came alive and all of the ducks began to see their potential. We've been confined to this mundane existence of waddling for far too long, exclaimed the duck preacher. We can spread our wings and we can fly. The service continued with enthusiasm for over an hour with shouts of, Amen filling the duck church. And when the duck church, sorry, when the duck preacher concluded the service, the congregation of ducks applauded and closed their duck books. And they all waddled home. I feel can church can be a little bit like that on a Sunday. We listen to a message, we weigh it up, we can get moved by it, perhaps even inspired, challenged. And then we go home. And we don't do anything with it. God's Word is not just to be listened to, challenged by, even enjoyed. It's to make a difference. It's to assist us as disciples of the rabbi of all rabbis, the Lord Jesus Christ, to become more like him. And as we approach Easter week, to reflect again on a story of an example that Jesus left for them and for us. In the words of James, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says.